The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gayed. I am the publisher of the Lead Lag Report. And again, our special guest joining momentarily will be Trish Regan. I'll um, I'll riff on a couple of things here real quick that I tweeted out recently, and I'll relate it a little bit to the world that I live in. For me, risk-off is always about convexity where treasuries have that flight to safety bid, where suddenly you see money going into the safety of government debt, Yields drop on the long end as stocks go down. And obviously this year, we haven't seen any of that, right? You've had this unrelenting streak of stocks and bonds selling off almost on a day-to-day basis, which is wildly difficult to try to navigate through. It becomes quite difficult to try to navigate when uh, risk-off is not acting like risk-off. Now, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a little bit, but I am very much of the opinion that we are very, very close to treasuries resyncing to their historical behavior where they actually benefit from stock market volatility. And that, if I'm right, would be the bigger risk-off scenario I've been saying I believe is still coming. So we'll we'll tease that out. Trish, I want to make sure. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. Uh, this is my first time on the whole spaces thing. So uh, I, I commend you for getting me on it, Michael. <laughs> uh, every, almost great, every single guest I have on here. says the same thing. Uh, I, and I, I'm just trying to make sure I can share this with with all of my followers right now as well. So I'm going to share this, I guess, via the link um, and try and. Uh, uh, but anyway, I, I'm excited to be here. I, I uh, it's just audio. I understand, not not on camera. So just audio, right? Exactly right. So it makes, makes life a little bit easier. So yeah. So, so Trish, listen. A lot a lot of people are are familiar with your name. They've seen you in the media for for really decades at this point. But I don't know if that many people really kind of know your your full background, your full story, your evolution from media to, to everything else that you're doing now currently. So just maybe reset the room a little bit in terms of your background. Talk about your history and, and what you've been up to lately here. Sure, sure. Thanks, Michael. So my background is that I, I first started out in finance. My my first job actually was on the emerging markets desk at Goldman Sachs. And I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But I, I, I kind of found myself wanting to do something a little bit different. And the year was, let's see, 2000. And financial news, of course, was making a really big impact. Don't forget, that was, you know, during sort of the tech 
heady days and and all of a sudden people were discovering places like CNBC and Bloomberg and so I uh, I I sent my tape over to Bloomberg that I had made while I was interning during my senior year at Columbia at NBC News and I sent it over and I was probably one of the only people they'd ever hired that knew how to work a Bloomberg terminal, of course, because I'd been at Goldman and had assumed I was going to continue on sort of in that in that space uh, until Bloomberg came through with an offer. And so I started there and that was sort of the beginning of it all. That would have been back in the year 2000. And I went on to work at CBS Market Watch and CBS News at CNBC at Fox Business and now have my own media company and my own website, which is trishintel.com, trishintel.com and my own podcast, The Trish Regan Show, I, I also do a lot of work. I publish the American Consequences magazine, which is a financial and sort of international relations political magazine that looks at everything that's going on in the world from an investor standpoint as well. And that's at AmericanConsequences.com. But uh, that's, uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. I have a financial background, a news background, uh, I think a, a good sense of international events. My Again, going back to the Goldman days where I was trading emerging market sovereign debt. So when I see what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, when I see the changes that could come about, for example, in Venezuela, I, I, it, it goes back to my roots, so to speak, Michael. Okay, so first I want to I have a conversation here around some of the similarities and differences between financial media and traditional media. And I'm not going to necessarily put Bloomberg in that conversation because... I think Bloomberg, of all of the financial media outlets, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is probably the least narrative-driven, right, versus maybe the CNBCs of the world or the Fox businesses of the world. So you've got sort of the financial media side, which people are cynical about, and then you've got the kind of traditional news media side. From your experience, what are, what are the similarities and what are the differences? Because we all know that ratings are how ad revenue comes in which means that to some extent, all media agencies need some degree of fear to get people to tune in. But fear in financial markets is obviously different than fear when it comes to traditional news. So to talk through some of those dynamics, because as I'm sure you'd agree, a lot of people's attitudes towards news have changed over the years. Yeah, no, I, I would actually say for sure, you know, as an investor, you need to be really mindful of the media's agenda. I'll give you a good example. When I was at CBS News and I was trying to do a story Back, uh, this would have been before the whole meltdown in 2008. So call it 2006, and and I was like, okay, I get this. It's a house of cards, and I had been talking to enough derivative traders and enough people that that I understood subprime was a huge problem. Potentially had the ability to to take it all down. Noel Rabini, I remember, uh, he sat down with me for about an hour and we did an interview and I, I wanted to package this up. And <laughs> the editors at CBS said to me at the time, are you kidding? Are you crazy? The market's at an all-time high. What are you sitting here talking about a house of cards for? And I'm like, no, but this is real. But you see, what happens in mainstream media is they want to go with what is at the moment, right? Like you can't be too far ahead of the news curve. You want to be on the news curve. And so I wound up, I, I did get that story on. I got it onto the weekend evening news. But it, my point being that the, the media is always sort of caught up in the moment. There is an agenda for sure. I even saw it for sure at Bloomberg. I can remember being in an argument with Gene Sperling about GDP. And he had the view that somehow you needed to keep 
spending more as a percentage of your economy, if you weren't spending more, 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 more and keeping up with that percentage of GDP on spending, then somehow you were cutting back. And, you know, I'm like, well, well, I don't get it. Wait a second. Like if I'm a family and I earn more money, does that mean I have to go out and buy a bigger house and a bigger car? If I'm earning more money, like, isn't that good? Maybe I can pay off some of my debts. And uh, it was a huge deal. And I heard from management, what are you doing? Getting in an in in a argument with Sperling. So I would say every media organization has their biases, without a doubt, whether you're talking Bloomberg, whether you're talking CNBC, where, by the way, I also heard that Bear Stearns was really upset back when I was talking about how their hedge fund was about to implode back in the day. And uh, that that came back to me, as well as... Uh, CNBC and for sure Fox Business, all of them have their biases. So the most important thing I think for investors is to take all of it with a grain of salt. Watch it with peripheral view. Know that there's an agenda. Know that, you know, Bear Stearns at the time was advertising on CNBC and on Bloomberg. And, you know, there's relationships there um, that you've got to be aware of both politically and then in terms of the market. And then also know that, look, when when the market's down a thousand points, they're piling on. Right. They want all the bears that they can get. Nobody wants to talk about, well, this whole thing could be reversed and it's a buying opportunity when everybody's selling because that's not where the news cycle is. And so I think the most important thing, and I've certainly you know, been very aware of this over the years, is to understand what the media is and to be able to, to kind of just cut through it, right? You need to be able to cut through that noise. And I really would call it noise, Michael. Yeah, I was asking Adam Johnson this, this point about who do you blame when it comes to this frustration around the media? Do you blame the the person that's ordering the food or the person that's serving it. In other words, you know, at the end of the day, this is they're they're capitalist entities. They need to make money, and they're simply giving the people what they want. So, what's what's your view on sort of the the notion of of providing the audience with what they want versus sort of the maybe the responsibility of proper journalism? I, I got you. I mean, my problem perhaps throughout my career is that I am just a little bit too true blue and what you see is what you get. And, you know, I, I remember I took a lot of heat when I, I pointed out that coronavirus had been overly politicized. It was so politicized. And now, you know, there was sort of this fear factor that had set in. And and I said, look, investors that are smart are going to buy in here when you're down 2000 points on the Dow because, you know, CNN has has turned this into an event. And, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of pushback and a lot of sort of cancel culture. Let's gang up on Trish right now. But look, I, I'm I'm willing to take it like I, I stand by what I say. And, and I've never been one to, you know, like I pushed like crazy for the story at, at CBS News that we needed to be covering the downside, the potential downside, which was a giant house of cards ahead of this 2008 subprime crisis. I mean, I, I can't ignore things and, and maybe I'm just a little too um, Pollyanna in that way. But for me, anyway, I, I just I, I put it out there. I think the media in general is a machine. They don't want what what doesn't work at that moment in time. And so the most important thing I, I tell investors is is just be able to understand where they're coming from. In other words, there were political reasons that I'm not, by the way, I, I lost people that I'm extremely close to, was extremely close to with coronavirus. And I'm not, you know, saying that, it, just to be clear on that, like this was awful and just a, a horrible, horrible thing for society. But back in that sort of initial stage, we didn't know a lot, but 
all we knew was that the market was kind of going wild and, and, you know, mom and pop investors were getting really, really scared because of the news cycle. And I just think there was a political reason for that news cycle. And those are your buying opportunities. I mean, when everybody completely freaks out and, and Michael, this is what you do so well too, in terms of your lead lag approach, you understand the psychology of the moment. You understand, okay, when everybody's running for the hills, if I can afford these risks, this is the time for me to actually get in. And so I think it's always, you know, whether or not it's the media's responsibility, I'd say, no, like, look, you, this is, it's our responsibility as individuals to understand what the heck the media is doing. Right. And, you know, don't assume that they're ever on your side. They're just on the side of getting as many views as they possibly can on their platforms. So as an individual investor, you need to be able to see through all that and understand what's real. But just you said cancel culture, because it seems to me that cancel culture now has gone beyond what you would see on social media, but it's happening, I would argue, in, in what we're seeing with corporations' responses to Russia, right? So I am curious, given your experience covering global events for so long and, and talking to many thought leaders and, and people of, of power here, what do you think about the way that companies have responded to Russia? Because they haven't really waited for the government to act. A lot of companies have taken it on their own to just say, we're no longer going to be operating in Russia. That's it. And and I wonder if that has unintended consequences that could be much more harmful than people realize. Riff on that a little bit. Okay. So the, the, I, I know where you're going with this and the, and the danger is, do you see an alternative to the SWIFT, SWIFT banking system? What I, what I would start with is, first of all, <laughs> I love sanctions, okay? I love sanctions from the standpoint that can we affect behavior with, financial incentives instead of military, all right? I would always rather lose dollars than lives. So the problem we always have with sanctions is that there's workarounds, people figure out the workarounds, and then ultimately what often seems to happen is that the people themselves are the ones that are most hurt. I mean, I take North Korea as an example. We've had sanctions there forever, and yet you know, Kim Jong-un drives the latest Mercedes and, you know, has has no problem taking care of himself and his family while the people are starving. Well, part of the problem there is you've got China that's still selling coal and, you know, doing deals with North Korea. So they've had workarounds. So unless you unless you're really serious about enforcing these, then you, you do have problems. As far as Russia goes, I think that we saw already in the markets People anticipated that we were going to put the ban on Russian oil, and so that's why it became like the hot potato. Nobody wanted to own it, and consequently, you saw oil prices just skyrocketing. So that was an example of, you know, nobody wanted to actually touch this stuff. I actually think that that's, that's good. Now, the fear is, and I understand it, but right now, still, you know, U.S. is the safe haven. It's the place to be. It's why you see people flocking into the U.S. equities, gold, during moments of trouble. And, and of course, the U.S. dollar. But I, I, I think long term, what the, the concern is, is that you might see countries trying to find an alternative to the SWIFT system. And China has already made some inroads on this. If we are in a situation where China and Russia and Iran and the bad actors in the world, so to speak, um, are able to create their alternative system, then it really threatens the security and safety of the U.S. dollar, and therefore, you know, really threatens our entire system. And so there are a lot of people that worry about that. I'm of the view that we need to do what's right as the hegemonic power of the world. Like, we are still the United States of America, 
and we're not okay with you know innocent civilians being blown up and we need to use our power where wherever we have it the previous administration i thought did a pretty good job at this they they used sanctions appropriately in order to try and affect outcomes. I, I do believe in that still. I, I, I want us to be able to stand up for something and not have to use our military to do it. It's the first time in my entire career, and I've been in the media business now, what, 22 years? My gosh. <laughs> but um, I, I, I've been in the media business a long time. I've never owned my content until now. And that is a, a really kind of neat thing, knowing that you are in control. Now, it's tricky, right? Because if, if people decide to pile on, you you run those risks, but you, you're still, you're in charge of your own destiny, so to speak. So I own my podcast. The Trish Regan Show is mine. I have partnered with Salem Media, which does a lot of work with conservative personalities. So that is helpful, right? In that it, they're kind of used to the pile on effect and, and what liberal media might might say, et cetera. But, you know, what I say is what I say. I, I, I answer only to myself. And and that's a, an incredibly powerful position to be in. There's there's no, you know, people don't realize, like in, in mainstream media, like all my commentaries actually had to be approved every single night. It was really painful because I had to write it all. Whereas I love to just talk like I'm talking to you right now. And in my show right now, the Trish Regan show, it's just me ad-libbing and talking and I have bullet points, but I don't have to go and, you know, get anything approved by anybody else. All of my commentaries were, were, and that's sort of the system of mainstream media. There's an editorial process, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, you get the, the network's name, so to speak, on the line, not just your own. And so I, I love being out on my own in terms of helping to grow my message. I mean, I, I, I think that it's great that I have the Twitter presence, Facebook. There's Rumble, by the way, is great. I'm, I'm on YouTube as well, but I have about 200,000 and, and change followers on the Rumble account that I started pretty recently. It's been harder to grow it on on YouTube. I will I will just say that I did a commentary the other day on on Russia and Ukraine, and and just really talking about what was going on. Not. By the way, not critical of our administration at all, but nonetheless, I got tagged by YouTube saying, well, this is, you know, violent or something. And I'm like, no, 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 it's just me talking about, you know, the oil crisis that was going to ensue. So understanding sort of and navigating the challenges of this new media space are quite real. I would say that, um, which is why I like platforms. Locals is another platform that, that I advise people to check out, especially creators that are responsible for their own content, because I'm there at trishregan.locals.com. And it's a it's a wonderful little group. We just started it. And it's a platform where there's no algorithms interfering with what you say. So if I talk about um, oil prices going up because of the crisis in Ukraine, well, it doesn't trigger some kind of algorithm that says, this is Trish Regan talking about Ukraine. You should probably block it. Um, so I like that. But look, I, it's 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 a wonderful feeling to be out on my own, to have full content control. I never actually did understand the power of social media until I was on my own. When you say, well, you, you recognize this early on, not really. I would say it was just kind of something I did. Um, because I kind of had to, and it was just part of the the deal, like making sure that we got a couple sound bites out for the show to help generate some interest in the show. It did kind of grow on its own, 
but I didn't understand the value in it in, in terms of being able to reach my audience. What I would say is that I can reach more people now on my podcast and via social media than I could on a nightly basis at Fox Business because the numbers are that significant out there sort of in the real world, so to speak, as opposed to the traditional television medium, which is dying. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the point about algorithms because, you know, to me, this is what I think is causing so much polarization in every aspect of the way that we live, right? Because I always make this point that social media companies, they make money just like traditional media companies from advertising, which means they have to make sure that users are engaged, the surest way to get engagement from users is to throw at them content that they already agree with, hit on the confirmation bias. And what's the end effect of that? It actually makes people more extreme because they keep seeing things that they already agree with. So it entrenches them further in their belief system, which causes them to stay on the platform more, causes them to have more ad service, but also causes them to be more on the on the extreme side of thinking, right? Which is kind of a whole nother dynamic about society, which I think is is really interesting. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. You know, a lot of people certainly perceive me as as being extremely political, and I'm actually really not. I'm registered as an independent. I have voted for both sides. I, yes, tend to be more conservative because I'm uh, really about lowering taxes and lessening regulation and opening up our economy so that it can be the capitalist, wonderful engine that it is, and that governs a lot of my thinking. But whatever, you know, whatever party's willing to do this, and I say, hey, JFK cut taxes, I'm all for. And so I'm very much governed by what is going to be best in my view, for the American economy. And that's sort of what, what, you know, is first and foremost in my mind. And so I say this because I think we're in a very political situation right now. And I know that a lot of people want to pile on Joe Biden. I think that, you know, the autopsy on what's gone down can be saved for a little bit later. I I don't want to just jump on top of him here. But what I would say is, to me, it's very obvious that we need the Keystone Pipeline. We it would have been great to have had it right now, right? Like it would have been lovely to have made sure that we had that in effect. It, it was something that was in production for what ten years, and so these things don't get built overnight. In terms of the drilling, Jensaki has pointed out that there are seven thousand leases on land right now that companies have not activated. The reason these companies, and she said, why don't you ask the energy companies why they're not activating these? The reason they're not activating them or haven't invested in them is because of what happened with Keystone. And there has been a very definite bias from this administration that we need to switch to green energy, which I don't dispute, by the way. I I, I actually am looking at, <laughs> at, at getting solar panels from my house and 
have been uh, considering a Tesla, which, you know, I have huge admiration for Elon Musk, and I think he's created a great car. So I I say this without the bias of being anti-green energy. I'm pro-green energy, but I am a realist, and I know that 99% of the cars right now are not electric vehicles on the road, and we need to make sure that we don't cut off our nose to spite our face. So we're in this transition time. You can't completely just wean yourself off of oil without having a massive recession, right? Because you'd be looking at $9 a a gallon at the pump. Now, in terms of what we can do in the U.S., yes, we should green light more energy projects in the U.S., both green and traditional fossil fuels. All of those will take time. So this is where I say, okay, we got to look around the world and be pragmatic. And I really say this, absent of politics, I care most about America and Americans. Where can we get oil right now that would be relatively speedy in terms of getting it to the United States of America. And look, I've spent time in Venezuela. I've traveled there. I've traveled to the Orinoco region, which is home to 300 billion proven reserves. That would be the most in the world. I think Saudi Arabia has about 280. We have 300, forgive me, 35 billion in proven reserves. So if you're down there three hours from Miami and you've got 300 billion in proven reserves, it makes sense to try and figure out a way to have a friendly nation down there as opposed to a foe. I say this also through the prism of, of understanding our, nas- our our security risks, right? That it being a matter of national security, that you don't want Russia and Iran and China hanging out as much there um, as you would prefer to have our influence there. And so this is something that I think the Trump administration tried to work on their answer was sanctions for the Maduro regime, and the sanctions were designed to try and help get a new system of government in there led by Juan Guaido. It didn't happen. The opposition, for a lot of reasons, and, and I've reported on this extensively and, again, <laughs> was there uh, on the trading desk at Goldman Sachs when Hugo Chavez first came to power. And we thought, oh, maybe he won't be that bad. He turned out to be really, really bad. Lula was actually the guy down in Brazil that we thought was going to be awful and then opened up the economy. So if, if there's a way to open up that economy to ensure democratic elections and my sources, and I've got sources throughout the opposition, throughout the Maduro regime and in the U.S. government, as well as U.S. businesses, I'm going the sense that there is a willingness for the Maduro administration to look towards having very free, fair elections. You can have the Carter Foundation. I believe the Carter Foundation has already been there. You can do more of that. And if we can have friends down there as opposed to enemies, if we can get the Russians out, if we can get U.S. companies accessing that oil, I think that makes sense. I can tell you Chevron has operations already there that they could turn on tomorrow, ConocoPhillips as well. And I'm told there are 23 billion barrels of oil right now in the ports that have just been sitting there. They're so log jammed because the way it works, getting around the sanctions, you get to take the ships into the Caribbean, change flags, change paperwork, then send them to Singapore, change flags, change paperwork, then send them to China. So imagine if you didn't have to do all that and you could just send it to Texas. I think, um, and our Texas refineries are prepared to handle it. So in the interim, what I would say is perhaps the most immediate solution is looking us right in the face. And we're going to have to sort of work through the political consequences of that because there's a lot of people, I think, you know, Rick Scott in Florida, uh, Marco Rubio in Florida really don't want that. But I'm just thinking about this 
pragmatically. And I think that we need to do that. I commend actually the Biden administration. They just sent a, a team down there to try and negotiate. They did wind up getting two American uh, detainees hostages freed. We still have more Americans down there. I think that, you know, it's realistic to think if we have a normalization of relations with them, we could get those Americans freed. We could get access to the oil and we could help the people by ensuring that you have free and fair elections. I'm trying to catch up, Trish, as, as best I can. It's just, uh, unfortunately, few understand much of what I put out. So let me reset the room real quick for everybody uh, that's joining for the remaining 28 minutes or so. Again, my name is Michael Guide. I try to do these conversations daily with different guests. Uh, it takes quite a bit of effort, so any kind of help in spreading the word would be much appreciated. Never hesitate to send me a direct message if you have any suggestions or feedback. So, Trish, you said something which was uh, was interesting to me. It kind of goes back to this point about this environment of extremes that we're in. You're either pro-oil or you're pro-green energy. And it seems to me that the pragmatic approach is you need to be pro-both because you really need two forms of, of diversification, right? One is, you can argue, geography, right? So it's not as dependent upon the Middle East and as Russia and so that you have more in the U.S. But you also do arguably need to have diversification of the source, which means you need to have other types of energy sources, nuclear, solar, wind, whatever it would be. The problem, I think, unfortunately, at least the way that I see it, is that it becomes so one-sided either because of a media narrative or maybe because lobbyists are just controlling the agenda that you never have balance. And because this stuff takes so much time to build out, you can't really have a robust, diversified energy source, different sources of energy, unless you have probably equal investment across the board. So I'm curious as to why you think we're at this place where there's so much bifurcation in the way that people view the energy complex. Well, I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of lobbyists. I think there's a lot of politics. So people get all worked up. You know, you, you look at what AOC has said about, you know, global warming. People, you, John Kerry, just the other day was quoted uh, speaking, I, th I believe it was to the BBC in perhaps Africa. I, 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 forgive me if I've got that wrong, but it was an international news source. And he said, look, you know, I'm really worried about the future of green energy right now and, and climate change because it's going to get people are going to lose sight of it. And I, I think there's just been this drumbeat, right? Politically speaking, it's become an issue that helps motivate, especially younger voters, to the polls. And you know, I understand that we, we've got a we've got a, a situation, but you know, you you can't do one without the other. I mean, I think you just there's no practicality left anymore, and that's in part because of this political process. You could argue it's also these algorithms on social media that generate more and more sort of the the same viewpoint and encourage people to be in these little very one track lanes. But it's it's not good for our society. Like we we really ought to have a, a multi prong approach. I think back to Brazil following the oil embargo. Remember the OPEC embargo in the 70s? Brazil really had some challenges in that it didn't even, it had no way of getting energy to its people. And so it decided to look to sugarcane because they had tons of sugarcane and the production of ethanol. And there was a concerted effort from government to say, okay, well, how are we going to do this? We need to make sure that there's ethanol stations at every single gas station so that people have this, right? It would be like us saying, okay, you have a charging station at every gas station so people have access to it. And so they did do that. And then the consumer was left with the choice. It turned out that ethanol was cheaper. It was more efficient. And so a lot of consumers wanted to buy ethanol vehicles. And so that was sort of the market 
really at play. And consequently, Brazil became one of the first nations to become independent, energy independent ahead of us. I think that's a good sort of um, case study in what can be done. It wasn't as though they were abandoning oil, but they they brought in the ethanol, which they were able to really um, process very cheaply because of their natural resources there in Brazil. And so why can't we do the same? Why can't we say, okay, we're, we're all in on everything and, you know, let, let the chips fall where they may. And we may want to influence things, you know, a little bit, but don't, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Don't cost the American people what you will cost them. People can't afford $9 a gallon. And, and, and it's a very real possibility that we're going to be looking at $9 a gallon come busy summer driving season. The other thing that I'd add to this is that politically speaking, if the Biden administration is thoughtful about wanting to keep their position, they're going to have to recognize that they've got to fix this somehow, some way, because there's no sure way to get voted out of office than to have $9 a gallon at the uh, at the pumps. I mean, Americans will be enormously frustrated and it's not fair to do to the middle class. So while we may say, OK, this is ethically, morally, and I agree with that, the right thing to do to cut Russia off right now, we have to take a stand. We can't get our military involved, but we can put financial pressure on. We also have to be willing to say, OK, we've got to mitigate this somehow, some way so that Americans are not paying the price so dearly. Yeah, I think that's an important point, right? Because cynically, I would argue that ideologies have a funny way of breaking down when uh, gas and milk and, and food is, is doubling or tripling, right? I mean, I mean, that's just the reality. It's just human nature. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. For sure. I mean, you know, and and look, food prices are going to be up 20, 30 percent and people are, are going to have a hard time with this. I, I think that we're running into an environment as you know, that you can classify as stagflation where it's very low growth and yet super high inflation. And if that's what happens, you know, all bets are off. I mean, Americans will say, forget about it. And 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 the Democrats will find themselves in, in a tough spot come fall and then in 24. So if I were them, just selfishly, I'd be thinking about, let me see how I can fix this. And, you know, I've got these pie in the sky dreams about everybody converting to EV. People don't have the money right now to go out and buy a new car for, you know, so they can have an electric vehicle and 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 doubt whether or not they're going to have a charging station. Look, we're doing some good things. They're they're trying to build these charging stations in Tennessee and and they're going to ship them out all over. But w- again, what's the lag time? There's other good things like we're bringing Intel now. Intel's building a, a factory in Ohio that's said to be worth 100 billion dollars. It'll be the largest semiconductor factory in the world. That's great. We probably need to be less reliant on having semiconductor companies in Taiwan given the challenging political uh, issues that we have going on there with China. So bringing some of this production back, I think, is good for America and is probably just really sensible in this environment. Yeah, I, look, the Fed should have moved ages ago. I said this back in summer of 2020. We were making a mistake 
the administration was sending out another stimulus check. I'm okay. Okay, this is a surefire way to get more inflation because we've got a Federal Reserve that's still printing money. They were at the time buying $120 billion worth of mortgage securities and treasuries. And I'm like, guys, you know, you're giving everybody a check. You're, you're printing money like there's no tomorrow. At some point, this has to wind down. And then we went into the new Biden administration where they handed out a third check. And still, the Federal Reserve was actively printing, buying up these mortgage-backed securities and these treasuries, again, to the tune of $120 billion a month. And and it's simultaneously leaving rates at a record low. And I just thought, this makes no sense. You're going to have massive inflation. Now, you think back to January, what were we at? 1.7% inflation. You think back to today, we're at now 7.9% inflation. So you see what's going on. A massive rise in, in inflation, as I predicted, Michael likely as well. I think a lot of us, it's amazing to me, right? Because I'm just, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an economist at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> what are the economists at the Federal Reserve thinking? Like, why aren't they seeing this? It's so obvious what's going on. And yet they were terrified to, to take away that punch bowl. Now they're finally doing it, right? And, and, and they're afraid to go with the, the 50 basis points. It looks like we'll have to do the 25. But then you get into the question of can we handle it right now? Because we're now looking at a World War III scenario. I don't think it's going to come to that. But we're looking at some challenging situations. So it's, it's really unfortunate that the Fed is always a day late, a dollar short. I mean, they never get this right. They never, ever get it right. And I don't entirely understand why. The lag time between what's really going on in the economy and the Fed following up always causes problems and I think has caused a big problem here right now. Okay, so hold on. So that was actually related to a question I was going to ask you, which is that you have the unique position of having interviewed and spoken with a lot of Fed governors, Fed officials, I mean, over the over the decades. And I don't want to make this sort of a session around dunking on the Fed, but you know, one of the criticisms, of course, is that it's a bunch of academics that don't know how things work in the real world, right? That's always the cynical view. But again, you've interviewed a lot of these these people, I and mean, presumably they are intelligent, they are thoughtful. I am curious if you've seen sort of common characteristics around people that are at the Federal Reserve in your interviews with them that make you kind of scratch your head a little bit. Well, I would say this, they all want to talk, right? And I'm like, hey, guys, like, can you stop telegraphing? I mean, there was a day, and this predates me, and it probably predates you, Michael, um, but there was a day when they didn't ever tell us anything. You kind of had to actually read the tea leaves. And now they're out there talking, talking, talking. Every single, you know, governor on the Federal Reserve Board is out doing another interview. And I'm like, okay, so so where's the romance? Where's the mystery? Where's the, you know, you're always telling us what you're going to do. I think they feel like it's so important to telegraph that to the market. But you know what? That takes out the normal yin yang. There should always be a buy sell. There should always be some questions about what the Federal Reserve is going to do so that investors are making logical decisions themselves based on what they think is really happening. If you're sitting there saying, oh, well, the Fed is just going to keep printing and printing and printing, then you know, of course, you should buy, 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 and you're not going to have the normal sort of, you know, bearish inclination that you should actually have because the Fed is always there to backstop. And by the way, keeps telling you that it's there to backstop. And so I think from a communication sort of PR standpoint, they've just so overdone it. And while I'm a big believer in transparency and hearing what's going on, 
they've made the markets too dependent on their information. And I, I, I think we kind of need to go back to a time when you only heard from the Fed very sparingly and, uh, y- y- you know, markets were able to kind of make decisions on their own as a result. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, I've long said that the Fed got rid of their most powerful weapon, which is the element of surprise. Right, that there is something to the idea of not being transparent, not communicating to keep the market on its toes, and that works both ways, right? Because if you are constantly saying that they're, you know, you're going to go a certain path, then you're entrenching a certain kind of behavior, and at the end of the day, the future is still unknowable even to the Fed. So why even go to that extent? So I think that's that's an important important point. So if some alternative energy starts getting more and more attention, well, Exxon's probably going to buy them out and then just squash them. Right. So, so how do you kind of counter those dynamics? That's an important, um, you know, and, and maybe you, you counter it by, by making sure that there is, and, you know, I'm not one who, who wants to see our government take over anything in any way, shape or form, but there's some encouragement in investment so that it, following the Brazil model again, where the government says, okay, we're going to make sure that, you know, you have a charging station in every single gas station in America. There are things that, that can be done to kind of help a fledgling industry along if it's a policy objective while simultaneously still allowing the consumer to have room. You know, I I think the diversification is critical. I think that, you know, Exxon, um, whether they'd buy them up and squash them or maybe they'd buy them up and and make something of them. That's that's what we hope, right? That there's enough sort of market reason uh, to for them to be in in multiple different forms of energy because you can't always count on solar, you can't always count on wind and clearly you can't always count on oil. So if we had a a, a multi-pronged diversified approach, I just think that that would be the smartest way to go. But you're right. We've got to worry about, you know, people getting bought up and squashed. Look at look at what Google's done, right? Or Facebook. <laughs> I, I, I think that you, you've got to really be on high antitrust alert. And uh, I wish there would be a little bit more antitrust focus right now on big tech. I think that this has been the wake-up call. This is the wake up call. And uh, if you can make both industries profitable, then it, it's sort of a no brainer. And as a capitalist society, that's you know what we're always trying to do. So if we can get cheap, reliable energy, both from green sources and traditional sources at the same time, why not? I want to take it back to your experience in the media space, where we are today versus prior periods where conditions favored an accident and the accident actually occurred. So 2008 and other kind of major corrections and crashes from um, now, again, I'm talking from the media perspective. Do you think there are any similarities in the way that things are being covered here versus how they were covered in advance of the Lehman crash in advance of the tech wreck, in advance of the summer crash of 2011 with the Eurozone? I am curious if, if, if you think that a lot of people just have their head in the sand uh, and, you know, they're not aware of just how bad things conceivably could get. Well, look, I, I think that there's some truth to that. I think that, you know, people have been riding this euphoria, courtesy of the Fed. Um, all caution has been thrown to the wind. Um, if if the previous speaker is right, then we might be in a situation where the Federal Reserve still isn't committed to raising rates enough, which would theoretically cause the market to keep going higher, in which case the painful fall at some point that you know has got to be coming 
is going to be even worse. We've gotten too divorced, I think, from real valuations. And there's just the sugar high that people are continuing to ride. When I see similarities between now and say maybe the year 2000, I think there's some things that you can you can sum up in that there's this general, I mean, you think about the meme culture, you think about day traders at home. Uh, that's very, very in line with what we saw back in, in 2000. So I think there there are some real concerns out there. If we can somehow manage to pull through economically without nine dollar a gallon at the at the gas tanks and and we don't go into recession, then maybe you can say these valuations are justified. But I can't help but think we're going to have some really really bad days ahead. I I, I would say I'm a long term bull and I, I believe in the United States of America and I believe in our markets and so I would look at those really down days as a buying opportunity. But I understand keeping cash on the sidelines right now, just saying, okay, let me see, let me wait. Yeah, and of course, the issue, as, as we all know, is that even, I mean, cash is losing money, too. I mean, this is what's kind of remarkable, right? Because on a, on a real return basis after inflation, it's just a function of how slowly you're losing, right? Which is what makes it so hard. Yeah, you know, look, I think, you know, diversification, and this is, everybody knows this, but, you know, real estate gold, commodities, things like that tend to perform well in an environment like this. And I, I, I'd i say it's important for people to recognize that inflation is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. I mean, you're not going to be able to turn this around without a major upheaval from the Fed. And I don't know if the Fed has it in them. I really don't. I don't know if they, we, there's no Paul Volcker, let's just say that, you know, hanging out in the wind, wings that's willing to move so aggressively. So that's going to be our problem. Yeah, 100% agree. Again, everybody that's been here for the hour, thank you for joining. Make sure you follow Trish Regan, check out her podcast. Uh, it's always good to get out of echo chamber. So whether you agree or disagree with anything that you've heard today, what matters is that you were here. And that's my objective is just to get different Thought leaders, different ways of framing the world from different uh, intelligent people like Trish Regan. So, Trish, again, hopefully this, uh, as your first space, will not be your last. <laughs> okay, I appreciate This is it. great. I love it. No, really. I, this is a very neat platform, and I, I love your audience and such phenomenal questions and uh, very intriguing stuff. So thank you so much for having me, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thank Bye. you, Trish. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.